Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. And every other week, I invite a trendy chef, pastry chef, or bartender on the show to discover their secrets behind the scenes, to talk about their creative process, and of course, to discuss new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. You can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com and click on the episode page. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with every new episode. Rating and reviews, of course, are always welcome. Today is episode 21, and I cannot believe that I was able to get Chef Edouard Lee on the show. Another celebrity chef, he has made numerous television appearances on shows like The Mind of a Chef or as a contestant on the ninth season of Top Chef. He is a four-time James Beard Award nominee and actually own five restaurants in Louisville, Kentucky and Washington, D.C. He just received the 2019 James Beard Award for the best book of the year, Buttermilk Graffiti. I was lucky to do a face-to-face interview with him in Washington, D.C. And I was kind of nervous that I completely forgot welcoming to the show. So, Chef, if you are listening now to this episode, welcome to Flavors Unknown. So it seems that you really like the word graffiti because I've seen it. Uh, you use it into your in your first book, Smoke and Pickles. You wrote that you made a comparison between the approach of this art graffiti and and food, and of course, it's the title. You know, it's part of the title of your new book, uh, Buttermilk Graffiti. So where does your interest in graffiti come from and what does it mean to you and about this analogy with uh, the approach to food? You know, I grew up in Brooklyn in a time when graffiti was um, just everywhere. So for me, it was kind of like the first art, you know, that I that I got into at a time when I was a teenager. So it was uh, just part of my growing up, you know, and, and I love the idea that you know, graffiti is something that is impermanent, right? That that it comes up and it goes away. And I've always felt like some kinship with food because it's kind of the same thing. Like we create stuff, but it's not permanent. It's just there for as long as it takes to eat the plate of food. You know, there, there are some meals that you create that are just, you know, like chicken stew for eating. And, and there are some meals that you create that are, you know, truly works of art. And, and, but, but they, sort of get digested in the same way. And you have explored the in, in, intersection between, you know, Southern cooking and your own Korean heritage. So you have created mashups, you know, like uh, togarashi cheesecake, color greens and kimchi, pickled garlic and molasses with soy sauce and uh, other dishes. So how did you establish this connection that exists in between Southern food and the food from Korea? I don't think it's like... Um... So first of all, I, not everything I cook is like that. I guess it's what I'm known for because sure. of the cookbook. But really, just it just happens organically. I mean, I think when you are, for myself personally, like you know, I eat a lot of Korean food, and and it's, it is the food of my childhood. So it's always in my mind. 
but then I also love Southern food. So the two vocabularies are always kind of present in my head. And so sometimes things just, I just see things, you know, where I'm like, oh, well, maybe we can do this or that. And, and not all of it works, but definitely it's something that, you know, it happens organic. I, I, I don't try and force it or, or make it a, a thing. And I probably do less and less of it now than I did in my younger days. But it's just something that I, I find that Southern food is very spice driven. It's very bold. It's full of flavor. And, and so is Korean food. And so the two kind of work well together. So can you give us some examples of, you know, parallel? Well, like the collagen kimchi yeah. is, 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 I think, a perfect example of, you know, two things that have never, you know, been in a bowl together. But when I ate collagen for the first time, I, it reminded me very much of a, a Korean seaweed soup that we eat. And it's very nurturing, very, you know, satisfying, very comforting. And, and as a kid, I would always put kimchi in it and eat it. So it just made sense to me. I didn't know if the people would like it, but it, it was something that for me made sense. And then you know, we, we tried it on a menu and lo and behold, everyone loved it. So it's kind of been on the menu ever since. Would you say that um, smoke is part as well at the... Things that exist, you know, in Korean cooking and yeah, and Southern yeah, I, I, but I also think like smoke is a flavor profile that's underappreciated and, and and is used in so many different cuisines. But definitely, obviously, barbecue is so important to Southern food and and you know Korean barbecue, which is a different. It's grilling over live coals, but that's also such an essential part of Korean food. So this idea of charred or smoky or burnt flavors is. It's very important in both cuisines. So you think that smoke should be like a basic taste, like sweet and salty and umami now? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because it, it, it's something that is its own distinct flavor. You can pretty much add smoke to anything. You know, like we smoke strawberries and it, it adds a you know, flavor to strawberries that wasn't there before. You can manipulate it. You can quantify it. It's, you know, it, it should be a flavor profile. Okay. So when it comes to um, ethnic food influence, people often mention the word authentic. And I know that you do not like this word too much. Uh, you make a distinction between the idea of tradition and the word authentic. So can you develop further what you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, the, to me, the word authentic is very exclusionary, right? So whenever you say something is authentic, it implies that this other thing is not authentic. And, and to me, that doesn't belong in the food world. You know, authenticity basically implies truth or realness or, or you know, the, the some kind of superiority. And to me, that, that just doesn't exist in the food world. You know, I, I like to say there's hundreds of traditions, but there's not one that's more authentic than the other, right? So traditions can be as small as something that you do in your own family home, or it can be a regional or, or national tradition. And those are fine, but, but no traditions are better than another. Um, you can argue mm -hmm. over them, one who may be more delicious, but to, to then use the word authentic, I think implies that some, something is right and the other thing is wrong, which I just don't think is, is part of our food world. Yeah. And, and in most of the cuisine, in fact, you know, every family have almost their, you know, their own recipes and that's part of the tradition, but you know, that's one of each of them are in fact very, you know, authentic to, you know, what they are doing. You know, exactly. So. Yeah. so I reconsider you as an expert, you know, on Southern cooking. <laughs> so you have seen in the past years the revival of Southern cooking with chefs and bartenders and pastry chefs that are elevating, you know, local ingredients and integrating ethnic flavors. 
and ingredients and techniques in traditional southern recipes. So you definitely covered this very interesting topic in your recent book, Buttermilk Graffiti. So can you give us some example of regional example in the southern part of, of the U.S. to illustrate that, you know, new trends or like recent trend? Yeah, I mean, you see it all, all over the South. I think one of the things that I've always spoken about is that the South is a very, very large place, right? From North Carolina or Virginia down to parts of Florida, west to Texas, you know, north to, to the eastern part of Kentucky. It's incredibly vast. It's one third of the United States. So to say that the South is one cuisine is very restrictive. The South is full of regional specific cuisine, like, you know, the coastal cuisine of North Carolina or South Carolina is very different from, you know, Texas cuisine, which is very different from Kentucky cuisine, which is very different from North Florida cuisine, from Mississippi, from the Delta. I mean, these are all very specific regions. They share some similarities, but when we start to talk about the South, we have to kind of focus in on specific regions, specific peoples, and, and you know, how immigrants are also changing the South. Um, you know, Mexican food in Lexington, Kentucky is some of the best in the country, you know, because of immigrants. And that is also a discussion that we have to start having because it's not just about traditional foods, but it, you know, the world is changing. And the world is, the real world of food doesn't stop just because, you know, we want it to. It keeps evolving. And so if we're going to be honest with ourselves, then we have to understand the, the nature of demographics and people and, you know, migration changes and, and how that food is uh, being affected. And tourism is, is a huge part of it. Going to Montgomery, Alabama and seeing that Korean food is very popular there because there was a... Uh, a Hyundai auto plant built in, in the middle of Montgomery, Alabama, is creating a huge shift in, in the sort of cuisine of Montgomery, Alabama. And that's going to be there for generations to come. So that's something that we have to acknowledge. And, and, and just because it, maybe it doesn't fit in a traditional narrative, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I mean, it's there. Anyone who goes to Montgomery, Alabama will just have to drive down the street and see that there's Korean restaurants everywhere. So part of it is, as, as people who uh, are food historians care about food, we have to acknowledge that those things do exist. So to me, it's very exciting. It's, it's an exciting new age for Southern food. Absolutely. You have other examples, you know, in pockets of like ethnic groups that are influencing other parts of the South? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's uh, Lebanese have been in, um, you know, the Delta for, for almost 100 years. And have been influencing the food there. You can read about this in Buttermilk yeah. Graffiti. There's many, many more examples. You know, the Vietnamese in New Orleans uh, and, and all of West Texas have created incredible fusions, if you will. It's everywhere and, and it's, you know, it's happening more and more as well. So I would like to discuss a little bit and, you know, your, your restaurants. And you have, you know, various restaurants in Louisville, Kentucky, and here in Washington, D.C., they have different styles. So how would you describe the different food and the drink as well menu between your restaurants, you know, so 610 Magnolia and, mm -hmm. you know, Milkwood and Whiskey Dry in Louisville and then Succotash in Washington, D.C.? Well, so just on a, just a very quick 
description. I mean, 610 is kind of the flagship. It's, yeah. it's our high-end restaurant. And we just, uh, there's no cuisine there. We just do whatever we want and, and make, uh, make the creative food that we love. So it's tasting menu only, wine-focused. Milkwood is more of our Asian restaurant, if you will. But really, uh, we, we, we do a lot of Southern food, plays like, you know, Korean fried chicken. And, you know, we have a ramen, but we use uh, Kentucky country ham to make the broth. So it's really fun, really cocktail focused. We do a lot of fun things with cocktails. Whiskey dries, basically just like what it says, whiskey and, and dry aged meat for burgers. So it's a burger and whiskey joint, very simple, very fun. And then succotash is really probably the most Southern food that I do. And that's, uh, we have two locations in DC. So it's basically all the classic Southern dishes, but with a little bit of an Asian twist. And do you see a difference between the clientele, you know, and the restaurant scene in, in Louisville and compared to Washington, D.C.? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, obviously people here spend more money and... and, and Maybe more international? A little more international. You know, I don't, I, I don't really, you know, I'm not one of those restaurant owners that analyze my customers. You know, they come in, have a good time and, and, and eat well, then, I, you know, that's all fine by okay. me. Do you have like a um, new project in terms of uh, opening new restaurants? Yeah, I mean, our, the next project we're doing is in Cincinnati. We'll do a restaurant in downtown Cincinnati, which is very close to Louisville. So that's all we have really in the plans right now. So let's talk a little bit about your creative process. I'm curious to understand where your inspiration you know, comes from. So I know you mentioned, I read in some interviews that done, on, done in the past, that you are combining three elements. You said there's a memory, there's a part of history, and I'm focusing and, you know, illustrating like an ingredients. So what, yeah. what do you yeah. mean by that? I have no you idea. You have no idea. Who said that. <laughs> I don't know what I said you. that. It was you. Uh, sometimes I say things and don't remember. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that works. Uh, I, I don't think that every dish is a simple process or, or, or you know, I, I don't think there's a pattern, right? I think a lot of each restaurant has different menus and different needs and, and we do different things with them. We do have a test kitchen in Louisville, and I spend a lot of time there testing out dishes. And, and it's really collaborative at this point. So, you know, I, we, we gather with my chefs, and they have just as much input as I do, and, and we create, you know, new menu items. And sometimes we just create components or sometimes just a sauce or just a pickle, and then we take those ideas and we send them to the different restaurants. So we think, oh, th this would be really good for Milkwood, or this should be a 610 dish. That's kind of how we do things nowadays, which is really fun for me because I don't have to run to all the restaurants. We just can centralize everything in one place and then decide how each restaurant will take that dish. And sometimes I create a dish and send it to a restaurant and they will also change and adapt it to their needs, uh, which is fine. And, and I do much, you know, as I get older, I do enjoy the collaborative process more and giving my chefs Uh, more freedom and more more uh, say in what we do and how we do it. And um, that helps them to grow and learn. And, you know, their ideas are, are, are wonderful. So that I'm really enjoying sort of being collaborative at this point. Okay. Do you have any inspiration that comes sometime outside of cooking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think everything is inspiration. I don't, I don't see, I, I, in fact, I probably like, you know, going to eat at a restaurant or looking at cookbooks is probably the least inspiring thing because you're, you're, you're seeing stuff that's already finished. So unless you're, you're going to steal a dish, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really inspire. It just kind of keeps you informed as to what 
you know, other people are doing. But I don't think inspiration comes from there. I think inspiration comes from everywhere, you know, seeing art, reading a poem, you know, walking through the woods. I think that's what inspiration is. You know, I think you, you couple that with knowledge and then, and then you have something of a, of a creative process going okay. on. Do you think that over the years, that creative process gets easier or is it all more difficult? How we say that? Uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think it gets easier. I just think it, you know, some days it works and some days it don't. And luckily I have, um, you know, I have more good days than bad, but I also have a great team. And I think that helps. So, so if, you know, if I'm not feeling creative, they can pick up that slack for me. So I think at some point you're having a, that team that you trust and, and work together is really important. Do you think it is even more the case when you are, let's say, adding a restaurant after another that you need to realize? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The team? of course. I mean, I, I can't do what I do without my team. You know, they, they, they keep everything running in tip top shape. And, and more and more as, as we open more restaurants, it becomes more essential to have them. And it becomes really my job to sort of, you know, rise them up and, and make them the star of the show at some point. Because there's no way that, that I could keep up with all the chaos of the restaurant business. Yeah. What are the qualities that you are looking into, you know, people that you are hiring? It's, it's basically, I, I want to hire people who are basically set up for leadership. It's really important in this business to lead people. That's essential. It doesn't matter if you're a cook or a waiter or dishwasher. Like you have to be a leader. You have to inspire people. You have to figure out ways to create team, create a bond. The one thing about the restaurant business is that we don't, there's, there's not one person that can do every job in the restaurant. We, we need everyone to do their job and then we create, you know, and it's, it, it is the ascent, it is the most quintessential sort of idea of, of a team that every single person has to do their job correctly. And, and if you do that, the business is actually very easy. But if even one person sort of falters, everything can come off the rails pretty quickly. So it's something that I look for in people who can inspire each other to get better, to rise up and, and, and do great work. I would like to discuss a little bit beverage pairing and food, you know, with you. So obviously, with my accent, coming from France, I've been raised with, you know, wine. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, this is what my parents and, you know, brothers, uh, you know, were, you know, drinking with food. I have a sister living in Burgundy. I have a brother living in, uh, you know, near Chardonnay du Pape. So that's my go-to when it comes to... Yes. Uh, beverage pairing with food. But I have to say, you know, discussing with you and, and hearing what you are saying that you opened my eyes, you know, on other interesting liquid uh, when it comes to pairing beverage with especially spicier food. So can you talk a little bit about uh, your approach of beverage pairing, especially when it comes with like beer and bourbon sure. or bourbon cocktails? Yeah. And I think, you listen, you know, wine's grab. I, I love wine. Huge wine geek. But wine is really, you know, was developed for a certain cuisine and, and arose out of that cuisine. And there are some cuisines that it just doesn't, I mean, you do not drink wine with barbecue. It, it just doesn't work. When we talk about, you know, American food has been very interesting because the history of American food is such that it's basically just been another version of European food for many generations. And so if you look at that, then wine is a perfect 
beverage pairing for it. But now that American food has turned spicier, it's gotten a lot of influences from Mexico, South America, from Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and all the spices from India. Now, you know, what some people call new American food or modern American food is really a mashup of all these things. And there are certain dishes where wine just, there's no wine to pair it with. And when we start to look at that, then, then we start to look at beer, especially American beer, uh, which tends to be more aggressive than European beers. And we look at uh, spirits, obviously, you know, for me it's whiskey, but whiskey can, you know, you, you never want your beverage to be weaker than the food. That you're eating. And so when you are eating things like barbecue or spicy food, whiskey is a great way because it, it will stand shoulder to shoulder with the spiciest, with the most aggressive foods. And so it's a great way to sort of pair, you know, your strength for strength. Let's talk about, you know, bourbon. So obviously, you know, I love bourbon. I started to discover bourbon like 16 years ago when I came into the U.S. And I have, you know, some of my, you know, my favorites and I'm curious, even if it is, you know, occasion related, mood related, what's your top five go-to bourbon? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a top five. I, I really just drink, I drink what people are handing me. Um, <laughs> I, the best bourbon is the one that's in your hand. Because I live in Kentucky, I drink so much bourbon and I know so much about it. I, I can't really pick a top five. But having said that, I think, you know, Bourbons to me are about the mash bill and it's about age. So obviously like weeded bourbons are nice because they, they are, uh, tend to be a little bit on the softer side. Some people say sweeter. I, th I think just more, more rounder, more, more delicate. And yeah. So when you think about, it's funny, when you think about weeded bourbons, I mean, you think about Pappy Van Winkle, but also Maker's Mark is a weeded bourbon. Weller. Um, yeah. yeah. And Weller yeah. too. So, so if you think about like, I don't think of that in terms of brands, right? Because all, people always ask me, what brand of bourbon do you like? I'm like, it doesn't matter. What matters is the mash bill. So what people are surprised at is like, I love to drink Maker's Mark. They have a cast strength. And the Maker's Mark cast strength is an incredible whiskey to drink. It's a weeded bourbon. It's uh, about, you know, generally 104 to 107 proof. It goes down easy and, and, and has, you know, great flavor. And people say, oh, but it's Maker's Mark. And I said, well, but it doesn't matter. You have to look at the mash bill. Uh, if the mash bill and the age uh, expression fits, you're going to be drinking a good bourbon. So, so those are things that's important to look for. It's not just about brands. Because once you start buying things for brands, you're overpaying for things. If you look at mash bills and, and age expression, you just you know, like to me, a 20 year bourbon is too old. You know, I'll, I like it, and you know, I'll, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say no. But you know, that 12 to 15 year age is is, is perfect. And again, depends on on what's in 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 the the bourbon as well. You know, a rye or barley heavy bourbon, not my particular favorite. Again, I'm not going to say no, um, <laughs> but it's not my particular favorite. But it just differs from person to person. People, some people like the spiciness of rye in small amounts. It does add a nice, you know, round finish to it. And so, like when we we have a, I make a bourbon with Jefferson called Chef's Collab, and um, still doing it. So, yeah, you're still okay. doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very hard to find, but it's out yeah. there here yeah. and there. But you know, it's eighty-five percent bourbon and fifteen percent rye, so we mix the, the two together, and it's very nice. It, it makes for a very round, sort of long finish. It's something that's that you don't find every day in bourbon. So, talking about finishes, what's your point of view on the trend that we see at the moment with the different cask, you know, finish with like you know port or you know other 
I'm not a purist, I, neither with food. So I'm not with beverages either. I think if it tastes good at the end of the day, that decides everything. You know, it's funny, every time, every time someone does something to buck tradition, people are always outraged by it. And I always tell the outraged people, I said, you know, the, the ultimate test of whether something will stand or become a new tradition or will stand the test of time, if it tastes good or not. You know, I don't care how cool the project is because I've heard some really cool projects and they taste terrible. And if they do, then it just, it's not going to last. And things like, you know, I didn't think port finishing bourbon in a, in a port barrel would work. It actually does, you know. And actually, even more so, this is a crazy drink, but I like to actually sip bourbon and port wine uh, at the same time. And it's a crazy combination. You wouldn't think it would work, but it's actually very, very, it's a very nice combination. So those things are like, like we have traditions and, and they work for a reason. But if we don't try new things, then we always get stuck, right? And, and then traditions sort of get stagnant or stale. So I love the fact that, that we're, we're doing all this stuff. I'll say not all of them are very good. That's where expertise and finesse and nuance and all that stuff comes into play. You know, I've had like, you know, this big trend of, of finishing beer in bourbon barrels, you know, and, and there's two dozen of them on the market now. And, you know, maybe two of them I had that I actually like, you know, and, and everything else are horrible. And that's just, that's just going to take time. And like, it sounds like a great idea, but it's a very difficult thing to pull off. So stuff like that takes a really delicate, you know, very nuanced, you know, master craftsperson to, to figure that out. And, and they will. But, you know, those are things that, you know, we're, we're living through that tradition right mm -hmm. now. So going back to the, the mash bill that you mentioned, the important aspect, do you look at the mash bill as, uh, when it comes to the pairing with food as well? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course yeah. Well, because the mash bill is going to affect the flavor mm -hmm. of the bourbon. So, yeah, yeah, very much so, you know, and, and how much smoke is in it, how much, you know, as well as how much, you know, what kind of char they're using on the bourbon marrow. Bourbon is very deceptively simple because mostly corn. You know, and then fermented water, but it's actually the more you learn about it, and I'm still learning about it. It's incredibly complex. So you look at mash bill, you look at char, and you look at sort of age expression, and those are the three biggest components, and and that will affect the the end. So obviously, depending on whether we're pairing it with a dessert, a savory, or something lighter, we go through different. You know, and then obviously you throw a curveball in there, like finishing in port barrels or, or finishing in different, you know, wine barrels, that's going to have a totally different effect on the bourbon. And so those, those things are, they're very complex. And, and I think pairing with bourbon is delicate because you have to, um, again, and we also pair with bourbon cocktails. So now there's the added complexity of adding other ingredients to it, but that's how we keep it seasonal. So anyway, those, those things are very good. And I have great beverage managers and beverage people that work on that, but Yeah, we taste constantly because, you know, getting a wine pairing wrong, you know, is not the end of the world, but getting a bourbon pairing wrong can be really disastrous. So it, it takes actually a lot more thought, I think, to do a, a bourbon pairing with food uh, because you really have to get it right. And do you work with your beverage managers when it comes to the cocktails? Um, you know, if you take like an old fashioned or you take a Manhattan based on bourbon, there's so many combinations between the bitters and the sweetness, you know, and the bourbon. So how do you play, you know, with those aspects? Do you, let's say, change those recipes we taste. And yeah. on a regular yeah, basis? We do. Sure. Yeah. We, we do it all the time. And, and we, you know, the, the best, most important is just taste. You know, we just, I've been 
we taste cocktails constantly. You know, maybe one out of 10 actually makes it onto a menu. Best way is trial and error. You know, you're just never going to know how these things taste until you put them in a glass. And, uh, but I think that's the most important thing anyone can do is just keep doing the same thing we do with our food. We constantly make food that doesn't work. And then, and then, you know, it leads to something that does work. Okay. So coming back to food, I'm curious, what are like the ingredients, latest ingredients that you are experimenting with a produce or? It, it changes for me all the time. But I think right now, spring is always a fun time of year because I really like to step back and get into the taste of things, you know? So like, to me, like there's nothing better than the taste of white asparagus, but like just, just the purity of white asparagus. And so, you know, again, as I get older, the food becomes more focused, more pure. It's not about mixing white asparagus with togarashi. It's about how do I just really taste the white asparagus and whether that's something that happens in the greenhouse or on the farm or how we pick it or how we, you know, distill that flavor. And so it's really like to me more and more, especially with produce, like the flavor is already there. You know, my job is just to sort of unlock it or figure out how to make it more intense. Mm -hmm. So I would like to pick up your brain and what I ask usually when I have a chef, you know, on the, on the show is to take a mainstream product and advise how a home cook can, can make it like, um, you know, exciting and different. So maybe for you, if we take like, uh, let's say a chicken sandwich. So how, what would be your suggestion on how people can prepare an interesting chicken sandwich at home with maybe a Southern flair and maybe an ethnic twist? So all those things, you know, when it comes to basic things like that, I think you have to really focus on the ingredients. So you can, you can take a chicken sandwich and use crappy mayonnaise and, and you know, white bread from the store and put some, and, and it's just going to be a bad sandwich uh, and, and it'll be fine, but it's not going to taste great. And then you can take that same chicken sandwich and the exact same things, right? mayonnaise but you can make your own mayonnaise or you can buy a high quality mayonnaise instead of using like iceberg lettuce you can use some kind of arugula watercress and then you can bake your own bread or you can buy an artisanal bread and that right there will will i think to me that's the most important thing you can do is just to to look at every component of that sandwich and see how each of those components you can do a better version of it or finer quality or find a better quality version of it that right there makes the sandwich 10, ten a thousand times better. And I think all too often we just kind of settle because it's convenient or this is what's available. And, and so obviously down to the chicken, like you can you get really good quality organic chicken versus just something that you find in a supermarket. So that right there is, is I think, the most important. Thing. And it's the easiest thing you can do. You don't even have to change your recipe. You just have to find better quality. And, and if you do that, you'll see how much better the, the chicken is. And, and it'll really give you an appreciation of why chefs do what they do. You know, we obsess about finding the best chicken, the best white asparagus, the best bread, because it does make a difference, especially when we put all that stuff together. So to me, that, that, that's the, the most important thing. You know, and then after that, you do some pickles, you know, put some, put some spice into it. You know, everyone has a different flavor profile that they want. You, you want to make it Indian, you can, you know, add some curry to the mayo. Those things are fun to do, but before you even get there, you have to work on the quality. So one last question before I go with, um, you know, quick rapid fire questions. 
Can you talk to me a little bit about the the Lee Initiative? I know it's a foundation that trains and empowers young uh, female chefs. So where did the idea come from and yeah. what's happening? Yeah, uh, so it? Lindsay Ofsasek is it was my uh, manager for she was my GM at Six Ten for a long time, and we were discussing uh, what we could do in the wake of the Me Too movement to help the industry. And it was really her idea, and it's her her project. I help support it, obviously, as my name is on it, and we help fundraise. But she really had this idea that you know if we're, if we're going to change the 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 inequality in the restaurant business, we need more people in leadership. And you know, to me, it's it's having a diverse leadership. You know, it's not about if you look at restaurants, the lowest rung on the ladder, right? Busboys, dishwashers, waiters. It's very diverse, actually. There's many, plenty of men and women. There's plenty of people of color. There's all ethnicities, all backgrounds. As you get up the ladder, um, you look at managers and GMs, and then you look at owners, investors, uh, head chefs, uh, executives, it becomes less diverse. And there's, there's very few women in, in those roles. And so if we're going to change, you know, the leading initiative is all about um, sort of equality in the restaurant business. And so one of the main things is that We don't need more women as waitresses. We need more women in, in positions of power. And so one of the things that we try and do with this, we have a, a mentorship program where we take young female chefs uh, who are in the early part of their career and we give them training, we give them all the tools and, and we give them mentorship and we show them what a path to success and leadership looks like. One of the things that we found in our research is that there are lots of, again, when, when you look at uh, entry-level cooks in restaurants, there's actually lots of women in those entry-level positions. But somewhere along the line, they all drop out. A lot of them drop out. For what reason? Uh, and, and we don't know. You know, there's, there's many reasons. But one of the things that we identified and we think it is, is because there really isn't a path to success. And when you see, if, if you're a woman and you see yourself being passed up for promotions and you see yourself not getting, the, getting ahead and you see yourself keeping the, you know, still doing the shitty jobs after two years, not getting the same raises, It's very discouraging. And so why wouldn't you quit and, and find another industry? And so what we're trying to do is combat that and, and show them what a path to success So what are the tools like. that you are giving them to guide them? So we have, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very complex. And you, you can go on our website and, 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 and look at it. But one of the things we do is we, we connect them to a successful female chef in the industry. And they do a one-week like mentor. uh, mentorship. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But we, do, um, we give them financial training. We give them media training. We give them uh, wellness training. Uh, so all the things that you'll find in this career that will hinder you, we try and give them tools to, to you know, cope with them and deal with them and that they will have hopefully a long and fruitful career and that when they do hit these roadblocks, and they will because everyone does, you know, we're, we're just giving them tools to, to, to cope with it, tools and, and also resources and, and other people that they can connect to so that they have ways to sort of deal with these roadblocks, overcome the obstacles, and then stay in the restaurant business long enough so that they will become the next leaders and owners and investors and head chefs and executives. And to me, that kind of diversity just all is just healthy. And I don't care what industry you're talking about. Uh, when any industry is run by men or run by, you know, only white people, it's just not healthy. You, you just do not have And, and it's not going to be the industry that's going to lead going forward. And so for me, especially in Kentucky, you know, I want to see the restaurant business continue to thrive. And I want to see it continue to succeed. And I think one of the ways in which it's going to is by having a fresh perspective on what we can do. And in many ways, restaurants are stagnant. They, 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 we've been doing the same thing now for a lot of years. 
and we need a new perspective on things and women leaders are going to offer that perspective so we're just trying to get them to a place of leadership so that they can you know carry the torch and, and create the new best restaurants for the next generation so um when did you start the the foundation this is our second year second year and have you seen already like yeah in, i mean it's not gonna so these are all young very young chefs so so you're not yeah i mean you're not gonna see anything five ten years maybe who knows it's it's not an instant gratification project this is something that we're in it for the long term yeah but we've already seen the first graduates from last year is a one-year program or? yeah it's a one-year yeah. program okay. so each year's new new set of interns i mean it's just the progress that they've made in one year from from you know the you know so we're talking about 21 year old chefs right and these are very young they're very talented and we've already seen them blossom and it's exciting to see and now they are mentoring the five new chefs from this year and then going so you can imagine in five short years you'll have a a, a club of 25 chefs who've all been through the program who all help and support each other and rise up together that, that's going to make a difference i don't know how and where i don't know what's going to look like but you know check back in 15 years and you're going to see a huge difference in chefs in in, in the region of kentucky because of this program and a radio solid network between mm -hmm. yeah. between them so that's great So thank you very much, uh, Chef, you know, for, for your time. So I'm going to end up with uh, five rapid-fire questions. So I'm curious, when, where do you eat either in Louisville or in Washington, D.C., when not talking about your own restaurants, obviously? Mostly at home. Okay. And if it's not at home? <laughs> There's a Vietnamese restaurant uh, down the block that I, I'll eat at almost once a week, or fried chicken if it's late night. Okay. What's the one of the best restaurants that you think you ate so far in 2018, 19? 2019? Yeah. I haven't eaten a lot in 2019. Oh, 18 then. I went to June Baby in Seattle. That was that was pretty incredible meal I had. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? I don't have one because I don't never feel guilty about eating anything. <laughs> Can you give me three dishes you could not live without cooking or eating? Yeah, a lot, but but noodles, sushi, and fried chicken. And what's your favorite food memory? Oh, I got tons of food memories, but I, I you know, I think cooking with my grandmother is something that I always in think Brooklyn. Back then. Yeah, 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 and she, you know, she cooked all our meals. My my parents worked uh, full time jobs, so my grandmother cooked, and um, we just, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and there wasn't a lot to do back in Brooklyn, so we spent a lot of time at home just watching her cook. And, and I still remember it to this day. And if the people want to know more about it, they have to read your they first have to book. Read, yeah, first book, and like Pickles. Yeah. Pickles. Uh, yeah. You talk about your grandmother yeah. in this book. Very interesting. So, Chef, thank you very much you you. Know, for being a guest on the show and Flavors Unknown. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. 
You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.